I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, February 14th, 2023. Coming up, we'll discuss your brain on music. That is, how singing and listening to music affects our brain. With Dr. Indre Viscontis, she's a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of San Francisco and an opera singer and director. So what kind of science story should I do? Whatever you like. I have no preference. Okay, well, how about something in animal science? We had something last week on animals. People might be animaled out. Not me necessarily, but you know, it's totally up to you. Fair enough. How about something on climate change? Hmm, sure, if that's what you want to do. Why? Would you prefer something different? Is, is that too been there, done that? It's your call. So if that floats your boat, sure. I'm getting the sense you don't want me to do a story on the topics I mentioned, but you're trying to be very diplomatic. So how about a story about a study that was recently published in the Journal of Marketing Research that investigates how one person claiming a lack of preference in joint decision-making can affect the other person involved? Huh. So does that mean yes, no? I love it. Go for it. Well, thank you. I feel like we've come to an agreement, and that feels... Well, let me tell you about the study. Marketing researchers from the Hong Kong Polytechnic University, Reichman University, CU Boulder, and Indiana University began the study by surveying 100 individuals online to select valid phrases that people often use to convey a preference or a lack of preference in joint decision-making. Some of the most common phrases they pooled from participants that do not show a preference, especially in a recalled scenario of deciding on where to eat, were... I don't know. I'll go wherever. And I don't care. What market researchers termed explicit preference phrases included everything from, I'm leaning toward option A, to let's go to option A. Some participants recalled vaguer responses, such as their decision partner saying nothing, or more specific responses, such as, I had Mexican food yesterday. What else? Researchers used this key information for a series of further studies. These included participants recalling or imagining having to decide with someone else on a movie or game choice. After surveying hundreds of online participants, the marketers noticed a couple of patterns. People who expressed no preference in a decision thought they were being considerate by allowing the decision maker to choose. They expected that they would be considered easygoing and that this would please the decision maker. However, the decision makers felt that co-consumers who said, I don't care, whatever you want, were hiding their true feelings. The decision makers still tried to guess what that might mean and typically chose something they themselves would enjoy less because they sensed a dissimilarity of tastes. In other words, if the other person is saying, if you want to play checkers, that's fine with me, the decision maker might not choose checkers, but another game according to what they think might please the other person. And that choice is typically something the decision maker favors less. 
As a result, the decision maker can find the entire social experience less enjoyable. Not only is the indifferent person making their choice partner decide for both of them, they may be hurting the relationship. People were perceived by decision makers as, and I quote from the study, more annoying when they expressed no preference. People who were more direct in their answers cast a more favorable impression on the decision maker. So the joint decision to cover this story topic felt good. Thanks for helping me choose. For How on Earth, I'm Benita Lee. I'm Jack Armstrong reporting for How on Earth. In the local science news, mark your calendars for the last weekend of February when the Colorado Environmental Film Festival comes to Golden. The festival gives you a chance to see some of the world's most innovative and inspiring new films about environmental issues and solutions, with stories from over 30 countries and a special focus on Colorado. At the festival, you could see the films and also talk to the filmmakers who will be there live to discuss their work. It all happens this last weekend of February at Golden's American Mountaineering Center. Find out more at CEFF.net. That's the Colorado Environmental Film Festival happening the last weekend of February. For How on Earth, I'm Jack Armstrong. Most people love music like that, whether it's opera music or classical, jazz, folk, or rhythm and blues, nursery rhymes or lullabies for that matter. And whether you're a trained professional singer or musician, or someone who just likes to, like me, sing in the shower or listen to your favorite playlists, you may feel that music has helped shape who you are and how you think and act in the world. But how? Many scientists have been researching how music affects the human brain. And lately, the federal government has been funding more research on how music can be applied to help treat many neurological and other disorders. My guest today, whose angelic voice we just heard in the music bumper, works at the intersection of music and neuroscience. Dr. Andre Viscontis is a neuroscientist and associate professor of psychology at the University of San Francisco. She's also a classically trained opera singer and a director. Her book, out in uh, 2019, called How Music Can Make You Better, was published a couple years ago, as I said, and Viscontis also serves as the director of communications for the Sound Health Network. It's an initiative that promotes research and public awareness of the impact of music on health and well-being. She also hosts a podcast called Inquiring Minds, and she hosted another podcast called Cadence, What Music Tells Us About the Mind. And she joins us from her home in the San Francisco Bay Area. Dr. Viscontis, thanks so much for coming on How on Earth. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I want to start by saying, wow, this beautiful piece you were singing. Uh, tell us about it and what about it 
for you? Sure. So that's the Chanson Perpetuelle uh, by Annette Chausson. It's uh, just over 100 years old, and it's just this beautiful chamber piece. It's about, uh, it's a poem based on the story of a woman who has lost her love, and she essentially wants to disappear <laughs> because of the pain that she's feeling. And it's such a great example to me of how music can help us work through some of the most difficult times in our lives. And as you listen, hopefully you kind of go on the same journey as the performers are going on to sort of find a little bit of closure and and let go of some of those deep emotions. Hmm. I know I felt both release and ease and this almost primordial yearning. And I'm sure it's something different for everyone. And I'm curious, is there something special about singing and singing that, that, shall we say, lights up your brain and heart versus, say, hip-hop or choral music? For me, for sure, you know, there are sort of two main times in our lives where our brains become attuned to the music that ultimately will affect us for the rest of our lives. The, the first three years of life, as our brains start to make sense of sound and develop the ability to to find meaning in sound, so um, this, when your you know brain is developing this whole auditory system, and then in our teenage years, when we're going through a tumultuous emotional roller coaster, and we're also feeling the pressure to separate from our family unit. I mean, that's <laughs> evolution doing its job, right? You want to get away and get some genetic diversity into the. <laughs> um, and and that's to find other people with whom we connect. And so to me, you know, when I was growing up, this kind of music really helped me form my identity. I, I loved opera. I loved chamber music. And that, that was what set me apart from some of my peers but, and helped me find my own group. And interesting, what's the third stage? You said there are three stages, that very early. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah so, so, those are, so those are the two main stages. Um, and then I will say, uh, uh, I guess I misspoke, it's two, two stages, that early, early part and then um, the teenage years or in your early 20s. But that is what lasts all the way until the end of life. So one of the reasons why we sometimes see people in the late stages of dementia who maybe really don't respond to other attempts to communicate with them, say using language, suddenly light up when you play music from their early 20s. Uh, you know, it's because essentially these musical memories are still intact and also they're so tied to our arousal system, to sort of, you know, our whole, our whole way of being. Um, and so that's why we have this kind of, we call it like a reminiscence bump uh, and, it's, and it's specific, too, as well, not just to our memories, but to our musical memories. Interesting. And one of the things that got me interested in wanting to learn more on the science front is I'm actually in a threshold choir, and our mission is to sing to people who are actively dying or, as you mentioned, like in hospice care as Alzheimer's patients. And we definitely witness that effect with dementia patients. And I'm sure many people, many listeners have seen the documentary Alive Inside, which you can't but love, and yet it's very evidence light. So on this front, take me, take us to some of the research, like what actually is known about what's happening in the brain, whether it's, let's take dementia patients and those at the end of life, listening to music, what kind of music based on who they are and what is, what is the mechanism, like what's actually happening? Yeah, so, so one of the reasons why music can remain uh, this communicative, have this communicative power is because if you, if you just like track the, 
brain regions that seem to be important for remembering music, musical memories. It seems to be one of the last parts of the brain networks to be affected in most people with Alzheimer's disease. So that's, that's one thing. But there's another thing that we're seeing, too, which is that music is redundantly represented in many different brain networks. I mean, some people say, well, music lights up your whole brain. I mean, that's a bit of a misnomer. That, that's what I call the sledgehammer approach to music, which is this idea that music is one thing and it can be all things to people. I like to think of music really as a Swiss Army knife. It's, it's got a specific tool for a specific uh, uh, use and, 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 and clinical, perhaps, intervention. So hmm. we see that there are many different ways in which music can, can be laced into these networks. And as we now are going, moving more towards a sort of networked uh, uh, idea of how the brain works and, and away from just this modular notion that the brain just has these series of islands that, you know, there's, that's the brain region for we're now seeing that these networks actually influence each other. So, and, and so imagine that you're, um, you know, in a state where your brain just kind of like can't get going. It can't rev up. Um, yeah, felt that many times. We sort of see that. Right? <laughs> right. Um, but if there's like a block and, you know, if there's some degeneration in one part of the network and it's sort of there's like a blockage, you know, the whole thing kind of breaks down. But what music, because it has these multiple pathways to arouse us, you know, whether it's emotionally, but also through our memories, and then also through, you know, just the kind of uh, physical movement, you know, like if you see people with Parkinson's disease, for example, and they have trouble getting going, sometimes, sometimes music helps them and, and train to a beat and just mm. moving. So there's all these different pathways. And so any one of those then can set the brain alight again and and open up these networks uh, for other kinds of thinking. Interesting. And if it's about the lighting up of these particular networks and causing or triggering arousal, how is this kind of response different from, say, for some people, running or hiking in nature or looking at a beautiful museum? You know, things light people up, literally and figuratively, in different ways, different bodies. Is there some comparison there? I mean, for some people, it's not that different, right? Some people who are really passionate runners, you know, maybe they get, you know, some of that same kind of uh, large-scale network building. Of course, the actual networks involved might be a little bit different because we're talking about different, um, you know, dif different ways of using your brain. But the truth is that, you know, you once you sort of, like, get into some of this lighting up, you know, it, it does have this kind of follow-on effect. And music also is very closely tied to our emotional systems, more so than a lot of other, mm. you know, forms of, of arousal that, that has a sort of specific emotional memory and, and, and sort of emotional trigger. Um, but, you know, there's, there's another uh, part to it, too, which is that, you know, there's so many different forms of music and so many different things to try. Um, and some of these other, other ways of, of interacting might, might be a little bit more narrow. Um, and then finally, there's a timing aspect to music, right? So when you're looking at a, at a piece of art, maybe there's a kind of, you know, initial uh, set of arousal, but then eventually you kind of satiate. And music just keeps you interested because it's constantly changing. Um, and it sort of, sort of, it sort of seems to... The, the tail of the arousal seems to be longer uh, because you can be engaged by the fact that it is a moving thing. It's not just a static uh, piece. And what's known about the enduring effect of things like that? I know you mention 
in your book, How Music Can Make You Better, that certain forms of musical training, as long as you do it once a week, one-on-one, for at least 18 months, it has this effect. I think in that case, it was more a cognitive, sort of a learning effect. But on on either front with the research, is it short-term arousal and cumulatively that's enough to actually bring one to a better sense of well-being and health? Or does it need to be done, you know, daily or weekly or what's known about that? Yeah, I mean, so the brain is a creature of habit. Uh, So just like any other kind of uh, training regimen, the more you do it, the more you benefit. Um, And so, yeah, in terms of getting those continued benefits, it is it is good to keep it up. But music also, you know, musical training as as in these sort of more sensitive periods as you're growing up and, and even when you're older, it's such a great motivator of change. Like people really, when they get into musical training, you know, they want to practice, they want to, uh, you know, work on their skill development. And so that desire really helps create the sort of neuroplastic changes that we see in the brains of highly trained musicians. I mean, the brains of highly trained musicians are kind of, you know, held up as a model of neuroplasticity, because we can actually measure all the different ways that the training has changed the functional and structural neuroanatomy of the brain. Interesting. I'm just thinking of so many celebrity, you know, famous rock, jazz, other musicians might have this effect, but also became suicidal and alcoholic and severe brain and other heart problems. Are those orthogonal issues or? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) paradox, right? And the fact that, you know, music can have, you know, these, these big influences in terms of our health and well-being. But the music industry can be very challenging, you know, and so there's a lot of stress that um, successful musicians have to navigate, and that can have, you know, major consequences. Um, But I also just want to say, back to this idea of, like, the longevity of these interventions, one of my favorite studies of people who listen to music, even though they are in the throes of dementia, uh, suggested that actually the, the... effects of listening to music that they love does have long, la- longer lasting benefits than you would think. So you would think, okay, so like if the mechanism is just that in the moment they become more aroused, they get, you know, they get more excited and now they can sort of be a little bit more lucid, um, that should only last, you know, for a few minutes, you know, after they finish listening to music. But it turns out that they perform better on skills of memory and other aspects of cognition even days later. Uh, so I think there really is something about, you know, the kind of way that, that music can kind of just trigger up the, the, the working of these networks again um, that does have a lot lasting effect. Wow, I want to continue with that, including, like, why isn't every insurance company funding the hell out of this and nursing homes using it? But first, I want to take a brief break for those who've joined late. You're listening to How on Earth, uh, Boulder, Denver, Fort Collins, and Netherlands, and around the world on KGNU.org. I'm Susan Moran, and my guest is Indravis Contis. She's a cognitive neuroscientist and associate professor of psychology at the University of San Francisco. She's also an opera singer and director. And on that front, I'd love to play another short clip or a continuation of that clip from you, since we are talking about singing and music.
Oh, that was meditative and <clears throat> inspiring. And I'm wondering, uh, how, how does that trigger you and your brain listening to something you obviously love and sang? I don't know when you originally sang this, but even listening to it now and what sort of effect do you want it to have on, on listeners? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's still one of my favorite pieces, and I, I love the uh, collaboration of working with other chamber musicians. Uh, so, you know, it, it brings a lot of warm feelings, but it's also hard for me to, to turn off the inner critic. I think a lot of musicians, when they listen to themselves, are thinking, huh, that, was that the right choice there? You know, what could I do differently the next time? Um, but my hope is that, you know, people who are listening really just connect with the emotion that everyone in that room is is trying to produce. I mean, to me, one of the magical things of watching or listening to uh, a great group of musicians play is that you get the sense that they are communicating in ways that just transcend language. And there's something mm. really comforting as a human being to see that form of connection on stage. And you think, okay, maybe we're not as alone as sometimes we feel in this vast world. Mm, totally. And you talk in your book and in some of the research work that there's a particular effect of singing in a choral setting, being in sync with others. And I don't know, I don't know if it differs whether you're performing or not performing, but relative to or compared to singing solo. Talk about that. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think, I think you know, any, anybody who's in a choir and then gets up in front of stage knows that there is, there is a difference, right, when you feel like, okay, this is, this is the take that matters, right? Everybody kind of really sinks in. And that's where you get the real magic. I mean, I think it happens sometimes in rehearsal, too, but when we're performing, we know that this is a, it's, it's a one-shot deal, and so everyone is really focused. And the beautiful thing about singing in that kind of environment is that, yes, we do see synchronization, not just of the breath, uh, which is obvious because that's what you have to do as you're singing in the choir, but of so many other brain and body rhythms. We see, you know, syncopation of heart rates. We see syncopation even in, you know, the brain uh, waves in, in, in people who are sort of playing or singing music together. And, and that really breathes this form of connection. I mean, there's something evolutionarily, I, I believe, uh, that gives us this pleasure of feeling like, hey, you and I are in sync. We are, you know, in agreement. And that's exactly what I think this, this experience gives us, is this very strong sense that, hey, you know, we are all on the same page. We are all in agreement. And we can go on this emotional journey together. And it's not going to be as difficult as if we were doing it alone. Interesting. Um, and we just have a bit more time. But I did want to ask you, like, to what degree... Is there more, say, federal funding for this kind of research, particularly in the clinical setting, whether for patients who are undergoing operations or dementia patients or those with Parkinson's or others? And why aren't we seeing if there's quite a bit of evidence mounting uh, insurance companies, nursing homes, et cetera, investing in whether it's playlists of music for dementia patients or other forms of music therapy? Yeah, well, there is this big, uh, a series of pushes by the National Institutes of Health and other funding organizations. And in, and in fact, the Sound Health Network, which, as you mentioned at the top, I'm the director of communications for, we have a website um, called soundhealth.ucsf.edu, where we list a lot of these funding opportunities, and we have a newsletter, and so I encourage people to connect with us. Um, and, and so there is, there is this, this increase in funding in the last 10 years because there's been this recognition that, in fact, there are measurable ways uh, that we can see the impact of music on our health and well-being. But there's still a lot of work that needs to be done because, as I said, it's a Swiss Army knife. 
So you need to figure out exactly how to use a precision instrument for a particular uh, intervention, for a particular uh, you know um, use case. So there's work to be done, um, but I feel very excited that we are in a in a totally new era of more funding. Um, we have workshops for for people who want to um, look more critically at these interventions, um, and that can all be found on the website. Great, and I know you have some coming up. I'll link to that on our website. Well, time is out, but I thank you so much. That was Indre Viscontis. She's a cognitive neuroscientist and associate professor of psychology at the University of San Francisco, and she's an opera singer and director. Thank you so much, Indre, for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by me, Susan Moran, and engineered by KGNU News Director Shannon Young. Headline contributions from Benita Lee, Shelley Schlender, and Jack Armstrong. <clears throat> our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from our guest, Indre Viscontis. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. <laughs>